this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So I know I've been gone for a couple of weeks because I've been up here at Harvard. Uh, I have a resident fellowship here with the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School, and it's been insanely busy. So I apologize for the absence of the podcast, but I will be able to start getting back on a more regular weekly schedule now that things are settled down here at Cambridge. I've got a routine. My study groups are going great. Big thank you to Michael Steele, Evan McMullen, Tom Nichols. So far, they've been my three guests uh, for my study groups, and we've had great conversations. Uh, Tom, Tom Nichols was my most recent guest. He came to talk about his book, The Death of Expertise, and how that just really applies to The way the Trump administration and Trump supporters handle facts, information, expertise, like they just reject it. And I called the class the audacity of ignorance. So it was great. So thank you again to Tom for coming up and uh, bringing his wisdom and wit. Evan McMullen was here last week. Uh, My class was the, the dangers of demagoguery. Big shout out to Evan. I sit on the board of Stand Up Republic. I voted for him. I'm a huge admirer of his work, of his integrity, and his tenacity fighting to protect democracy. So actually, Tom and Evan and I will all be at the Principal's First Conference this weekend, which is um, counter-programming to CPAC, which has lost its freaking mind. If anyone who has seen the lineup for CPAC, what is CPAC? The big annual conservative confab, something I used to go to every year and um, looked forward to. Not anymore, not since 2016 or so. It's just completely gone off the rails. And um, so Principles First started by Heath Mayo down in Texas. He uh, started off with just kind of a small gathering and it turned into a much bigger event. So I'm looking forward to that. A couple hundred people will be there. It's like a Never Trump confab where we're going to talk about the principles of conservatism and what we need to do to try to Get get some control. Get some get something back from from the way that it's been hijacked by Trumpism. Uh, you know what's the future of of conservatism? So looking forward to that. We were attacked by some of the Trumpers, Ben Dominich of the Federalist, more famously known as Meghan McCain's husband, tried to come for me on Twitter recently because I'm listed on this on the uh, website for the Principles First speakers. Uh, panels and things. And he's, he just went down the list and tried to attack a bunch of us and including me. And he laughably tweeted at me, Tara Setmayer has no political beliefs and will go to whoever pays her. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> That's the best he could come up with, please. Coming from the guy who got caught plagiarizing, had to quit his job at the Washington Post. And then we still don't know who funds the Federalist and didn't, didn't back when he was a journalist, quote unquote, took $36,000 to write favorable articles about the Malaysian government, the oppressive Malaysian government, by the way, and didn't disclose it. So he's got some nerve, but I handled him on Twitter. For those of you who follow me, you saw that. But that kind of attacks on us on social media just it gave more attention to what we're doing. And guess what? We had to move the, the conference to a larger venue. So I'm looking forward to it. And um, if, they, if we're so insignificant, why are they so afraid of us? It's kind of funny. Um, this episode is uh, a bit of an abbreviated episode because I wanted to get something out with everything going on with coronavirus and the chaos with the intelligence community, with Rick Rennell being named the DNI, acting DNI. It's it's just nuts. So 
I thought this was a good time to try to just get something out. And I have uh, Ned Price as the guest to talk about this. He's a former National Security Council staffer. He worked under the Obama administration, hands-on in the Ebola response. He also worked at the CIA. Uh, so he has a unique perspective on this, and, and it's a good comparison to see the way the Obama administration handled Ebola and the way this administration is currently handling coronavirus. Big difference. So he's coming up in a couple minutes, and it's a good conversation about that. Just a couple things before I bring Ned in. The... Um, the Democrats. Super Tuesday's approaching. We've got South Carolina primary coming up. A couple of debates, a couple of town halls have happened. And I'm happy to say Joe Biden has gotten his sea legs. I'm thrilled that he's doing much better. He had he he was solid in the last debate in South Carolina. Uh, he he really shined during the town hall, the CNN town hall. I mean, just the, his, his ability to express empathy and just be human to people in, in light of tragedy is really un, unmatched. And his campaign needs to do a much better job of putting him in situations where he has those human interactions. That really highlights Joe Biden's strength on top of the fact that he's the only one out of everyone on that stage who was ready on day one. I have said this repeatedly. That makes a difference. Look at the chaos that's going to be left behind by Donald Trump. Who is ready to step into the role that understands how government works, who understands how the levers of government work, who already has relationships with world leaders, who's been there a heartbeat away from the presidency for eight years. It's Joe Biden. You know, the Bernie, this this Bernie surge that everyone's trying to hype up, especially the media. Stop it. Bernie Sanders represents a very small fraction of the actual voting public. He's about 30% of the Democratic Party, which is only about 30% of the voting public. So the, he is not a viable candidate in the general election. He's extreme. He has extreme views. And some of those views are coming to light. His comments praising Castro's literacy programs in Cuba, despite being an oppressive dictator who... <laughs> brutally killed people. I mean, do we really need to relitigate how awful Castro was? Well, kind of, because the Bernie folks think that, well, yeah, what was wrong with they had literacy programs and how wonderful. No, you want to, you can kiss Florida goodbye with that kind of rhetoric coming out of Bernie Sanders. So, and he doesn't play well in the sandbox. The arguments that are being made against a Bernie Sanders on the, on the national ticket about the down-ballot effects of that, that means down-ballot means the other congressional races, the governor's races, the Senate races. Those races will be impacted negatively with a Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket. If Democrats want to hold on to the House, they cannot have Bernie Sanders as the nominee. The 40-plus um, purple districts that gave the House to the Democrats, those folks are not going to vote for someone that's a Bernie Sanders type candidate. They will get turned off by it and they'll vote Republican. I'm telling you right now. And the leadership in the Democratic Party knows this. So you're going to start to see more of a concerted effort to kind of vet Bernie more because he's escaped scrutiny for the most part. And it's insane. So Joe Biden, I think, is poised to win South Carolina easily. What happens in, on Super Tuesday remains to be seen because he doesn't have as much money as everyone else. And he has not really had a presence in some of the bigger Super Tuesday states like California and others. They'll try to make a mad dash after Saturday in South Carolina to, 
kind of do some, you know, swings through the Super Tuesday states like Virginia, where I live and will be voting on Tuesday. Um, But it's tough when you don't have as much money. But a win in South Carolina, good debate performances recently should help him raise money and get back in this thing. Because Bloomberg, he made his debut in the debate stage. It was a disaster. He made up a little bit better for it the second time around, but he's still not. um, I just don't see Michael Bloomberg winning in states that that the Democrats need. I I just I don't know. He's um, Elizabeth Warren has kind of been Chris Christieing him. (laughs) <laughs> the way Chris Christie did, just destroyed Marco Rubio. Well, you know, Elizabeth Warren is blocking for Bernie Sanders and, and she needs to, you know, what are we doing here? So I think after th- th- this round of, of elections, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Warren, they're going to need to think about what they're doing because unless some things consolidate, Bernie's going to run away with this thing with a plurality the way Trump did in 2016. Democrats, my friends on the other side of the aisle, you guys are making the same mistakes that Republicans made in 2016. There were too many that stayed in the race too long. They did not consolidate. It split the vote. And we ended up with freaking Donald Trump. You guys are going to end up with Bernie Sanders, which means we end up with freaking Donald Trump again for four years. So stop this. Get it together, (laughs) please. Um, we'll see. Come on, Joe. I'm rooting for you, Uncle Joe. Uh, coronavirus. Uh, this is, this is, you know, we should be concerned. Pay attention. You know, this is not anything to just dismiss. Pandemics are not a joke. And we've so far been relatively safe from it, but we're getting cases now in, on American soil. It is spreading fast. Uh, the administration has not been completely honest with us. We can't trust a word they say anyway. So that's concerning because then the public doesn't behave accordingly or taking the proper precautions. And, you know, and I just think that this is something, this is going to be the first real test, I think, of this administration and their apparatus or lack thereof. Um, Tom Nichols, who I said was just here recently for my study group at Harvard, you know, he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. If you haven't read it, read it. It is amazing, and it's so relevant to what we're dealing with with these Trump people and Bernie people, too. It goes on it goes both ways. But um, where he just talks about how people reject expertise and, and then they're, you know, turn it around and they're mad at you for it. It's like, what? You know, they vilify the experts who provide the information. And he said, until you need them. And he used the example, he wrote the book three or four years ago, but he uses the example of a pandemic. Well, that's when people who were mistrusting of, of experts, oh, well, then now the experts are, well, we're going to listen to them. Well, we're in that position now, people. So what's going to happen? Uh, is the president, I mean, if, if, if the way he handled that press conference this week is any indication of how this administration is going to handle a pandemic or anything like that? We're in big shit trouble. Oh my God, what a mess. But don't worry, don't fret. Mike Pence is in charge, folks. Mike, Mike, the vice president is in charge. He's going to save us. Jeez. Let me bring in Ned Price. Uh, Ned is uh, an interesting guy. He has a resume of being former National Security Council staff, worked for a special assistant for President Obama. He also worked at the CIA. And he has some things to say about the coronavirus response and what's happening with our 
Director of National Intelligence. Up next, Ned Price. Well, I am uh, pleased to have someone who is spent a career in the thick of things in the national security space, given everything that's going on right now between NSC, coronavirus, the DNI. So I'm glad to welcome Ned Price to Honestly Speaking this week as my guest. He was a special assistant to President Obama. He was an NSC spokesperson, worked the CIA before that. Um, and he is now a private citizen and an NBC, NBC contributor, still working in the national security space. Ned Price, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thanks so much. So, Ned, coronavirus. It seemed as though yes. the, the American people were looking at it like, oh, that's happening over there in China and Asia. Yeah. It's a world away. Yeah. Um, now it's on our shores. Are we prepared yeah. for coronavirus? Well, I will say that this is what it looks like when the U.S. government starts to respond from the position of a crawl uh, rather than from a sprint. And frankly speaking, I think the Trump administration uh, had the potential to respond to this sprinting uh, had President Trump not inflicted a lot of the damage that we have seen on his uh, national security uh, staff and the architecture and infrastructure around him, including the global health uh, preparedness and response initiatives that previous administrations, plural, had uh, put in face, uh, had put in place. Um, let me give you just, just one example. One of the key lessons that we learned coming out of the Ebola experience of 2014 and 2015 when I was in the White House was the fact that there is no substitute whatsoever for concerted White House leadership when it comes to an epidemic response. Uh, that's because only the White House, and in this case, uh, the National Security Council, has access to all the levers of government required to muster the foreign and the domestic response, um, which is precisely what we need uh, in this case. We learned, um, and actually it was, we were reminded in the case of Ebola, that in order to staunch an epidemic, you have to fight it at the source. And so you need someone who can pull the levers of the State Department, of USAID, of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's uh, international uh, elements, just as you have someone who is focused uh, and is able to uh, manage the trains when it comes to ensuring that the Department of Health and Human Services uh, and all of the domestic components from Department of Education for schools, Department of Transportation for things like waste removal, um, and, and the authorities working with our premier uh, medical centers of excellence are able to uh, be part of the domestic response. Uh, up until now, we have not had that precisely because President Trump did away with an entire team uh, that was dedicated to uh, pandemics and preparedness, uh, firing the senior director in charge of that National Security Council team, and firing or dismissing a deputy national security advisor, a guy by the name of Tom Bossert, uh, under whose portfolio uh, these issues uh, fell. Uh, so precisely because of the acts the president has taken on top of the budget cuts that this president uh, has proposed to places like the CDC and HHS and USAID and the State Department, we are starting from that position of a crawl. And it's going to have uh, profound implications for how this epidemic takes hold before we're fully up and running to confront it the way we should be. Do we know why the administration made those personnel decisions? Was there any possible strategic reason or was it part of the purge? 
So uh, my uh, ongoing theory is that this is, is an administration that is driven by equal parts chaos uh, and equal parts ideology. And I think there was a bit of both uh, involved in this decision. These, um, uh, uh, these uh, decisions were made uh, when National Security Advisor John Bolton came onto the scene. Uh, and if you read some of the tea leaves and do some analysis, uh, it seems that John Bolton didn't want anyone in his way who would have an equal channel to President Trump. Uh, and so that's precisely why uh, he fired uh, the, his, uh, the deputy national security advisor who had a line to President Trump when it came to homeland and counterterrorism matters, just as he also fired, frankly, uh, the individual responsible for cybersecurity, the cybersecurity coordinator who also had a line in to the president. Uh, John Bolton didn't want anyone who could go around him or go through him. He wanted to be the be all end all. On top of that, it seems that he, he wanted to focus uh, squarely, if not exclusively, on the so-called traditional threats, uh, you know, the Irans of the world, the North Koreas of the world, um, rather than uh, take on um, issues of preparedness and pandemic uh, response. But, uh, you know, if you had listened, if he had listened to any number of national security experts, not just epidemiologists, they will tell you, and some of this was born of the Ebola experience, some of this predated it, but what kept and what keeps, frankly, many of them up at night isn't... Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the potential for uh, a massive cyber attack isn't uh, the potential for conflict with uh, any number of adversaries. All those things are concerning and, uh, and have to be dealt with. But what really kept them up at night was the potential of a pandemic, um, something that uh, started overseas and came to our shores, um, finding, us in a, finding us in a position in which we weren't fully prepared. And that's exactly uh, how coronavirus has here. Now, Frankly, there was a, a, a massive investment um, in the uh, during the Ebola response, both overseas and at home. Uh, most of the uh, about two billion dollars of uh, more than five billion dollars that was secured from Congress went into hospitals and centers of excellence here um, and uh, equipped the CDC and HHS with some of what they will need to respond to this. But it was woefully inadequate uh, to respond to a novel virus like this that is much more contagious uh, than Ebola ever was and that has the potential to take root here in a way that Ebola never did. Right. I wanted to ask you something quickly about the Ebola response. I have a friend who's former NSC who saw a tweet of yours where you said that the the response to the Ebola crisis was one of your proudest was the proudest accomplishment for you on on the NSC and that you lost sleepless nights over it because it saved untold lives and he said he was a little offended by that because what about all the NSC people who worked on who worked through crises like Edward Snowden and Benghazi and election interference when Ebola was relatively um, uh, modest in compared to, you know, as far as lives threatened or the threat of a pan- pandemic here. It, he felt that it was like the, real, like the proudest accomplishment of the NSC. He just wanted to know, like, were you just being a little bit more hyperbolic about that? Or what do you say to him when he feels like there's been people, staff on the NSC that went through way more tumultuous things that had more direct impact on national security? I didn't say that to minimize the work of any of my colleagues. Um, and I said that having worked at the NSC uh, for three years, having dealt with things like ISIS and election security and Russian meddling uh, and everything else under the sun. Uh, and I made that claim uh, and I totally stand by it because Ebola 
in the end, um, was a uh, an epidemic in West Africa that uh, took more than 10,000 lives. It was a tragedy. Uh, but Ebola had the potential to be a pandemic, uh, the likes of which we had never seen, that according to even the CDC's own estimates could have uh, taken more than a million lives. In September of 2014, I was sitting in the White House Situation Room when the, when the head of the CDC showed the president of the United States a graph of the projected Ebola deaths if the United States did nothing, if there was no American intervention. And the tally there over the course of of a year was more than 1.2 million. And you compare that with the tragic number of people who who lost their lives in this epidemic, but 11,000 compared to at least 1.2 million, you look at what the American government accomplished and you realize the, the, the amount of good uh, America and Americans can do around the world uh, saving lives. And this was a complex response that, again, called upon uh, foreign and domestic entities. Uh, and it was, frankly, the most sleepless uh, and most frenetic period I endured during my time on the NSC. But you look at what we accomplished uh, and you look at what we prevented. And I think you remember, Tara, the, the national freakout that took oh, hold yes. in late 2014. It was all people were talking about. Oh, Ebola was coming to our shores. Ebola was going to kill us all. And uh, compared to some of the estimates compared to some of the suggestions uh, and the the way in which that epidemic was contained and ultimately defeated, yeah, it, it is it is the proudest uh, uh, mission, the proudest operation that I was a part of uh, during my time on the National Security Council staff. Well, we appreciate the effort, obviously, of what you guys do. And I don't think a lot of people know what happens in those rooms behind those closed doors because most Americans have the benefit of living safe lives without worrying about these things ever affecting them. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that you had the opportunity to defend your tweet. <laughs> I, I promised Thank I you would, for the opportunity. So. I promised I would ask, so I did. <laughs> The other thing, and, and just really quickly on the Ebola thing, uh, mm-hmm. and I can remember because I was at CNN at the time uh, mm-hmm. talking about this, and you know I had my I had some criticisms of some of the response, but you know as far as you know should we close the port, you know close the airports and things like that, um, but for the most part it was I can remember watching the the uh, motorcade of the the nurse I guess it was or who someone that was uh, that had a, the nurse like, yeah yeah because I'm from New Jersey yeah. and I lived in New Jersey at the time. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, you know, this is a little too close to home, a little too close for comfort yeah. here. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I remember that freak out. But it, thankfully, it turned out not to be uh, have any impact here in the U.S. of, of any measure. Thank God. Uh, which leads me to, to this back to coronavirus. When when you look at the when you watch the president's press conference on this, I as someone who's dealt with the potential for a pandemic or, you know, threats to our our national security. What was going through your mind at that point? Because I know I, I know it was yeah. going through mine, but from your perspective, what was going through your mind when the president of the United States was supposed to be offering aid and comfort to the American people? Yeah. He's like, don't worry, we got this. <laughs> Do you believe yeah. that? Well, you know, what, what occurred to me is this is precisely the toll um, and precisely what happens when we have a president who is told uh, by, by one mm-hmm. uh, 16,000 lies during his presidency, someone who has lied about things uh, and misled the public about things both big and small. And obviously there is nothing bigger um, than the health and safety of, of uh, the American people. Um, look, I think the, the president um, may want to project a sense of confidence. I, I worry that that uh, sense of confidence
confidence is born more of what has happened to the to the Dow and to the S&P uh, over the past few days rather than rather than anything else. But regardless, I, I understand the desire to want to project have this under control. But what we learned during Ebola, and, and frankly, what we were told by the experts who had been through this before, that more, what, was, uh, what was more necessary than confidence was honesty, was uh, a sense of context and perspective and a rhetoric that was guided uh, by science and by fact above all else. Um, because people who had been through this know what you know Americans, what would resonate, what they wanted to hear. And what they wanted to hear not was a whole lot of cheerleading, they wanted to hear with someone uh, with a background um, and someone who was steeped in the science and steeped in, steeped in the facts who could explain to them precisely how we would go about doing this. Uh, just saying, um, as the president did in January, that this is fully under control. President Xi has it. Uh, and now fast forward to, to, to late February, you have the president saying uh, it's essentially under control, probably not going to have a, a major outbreak here. Uh, you know, the president has borne already uh, a debt to the truth. And uh, I think you have to look at that through the lens of everything else we have heard from, uh, from this president um, when it comes to uh, his, his claims to the American people over the past three years. Uh, and you're not left reassured, uh, nor should we in this case. I think we need to hear more from people like Anthony Fauci. We need to hear more from people like Ann Chuckett of the CDC. Um, we need to hear more from the epidemiologists and, and scientists who are fighting this, people who can offer that perspective uh, and offer um, a, a more detailed uh, uh, context uh, about just how we're going to go about uh, containing this overseas and preparing uh, for it at home. Well, it's it's uh, you you mentioned Dr. Fauci about the, uh, in this conversation who reportedly has been muzzled, um, and uh, which is he's just for those who don't know he's the head of infectious diseases over at NIH, right? Director of that. And, that's right. Yeah, and that's someone who you would think the American people would want to hear from to give a scientific, medically, you know, medical expert uh, uh, commentary on this, as opposed to the president, who, like you said, we can't trust him to tell us what the weather is outside. So, but yet now the report is that he can't speak out anymore unless he gets clearance from the White House. Which is just it just goes to show you that this it, the, the way this administration handles expertise is um, it, it's beyond me because they that seems to be uh, antithetical to the way they operate you know as if they're they're the enemy somehow it's very strange um, the uh, the other issue I I was curious about with the with the coronavirus is kind of it, it, it segues into and you you touched upon this a little bit is just the the sheer um, breakdown of human capital of the systems of the processes the protocols that used to be in place at the NSC and the intelligence community. Um, everyone knows that there's been a shakeup with the director of national intelligence. There's been reports of how the NSC has, like I said before, is being purged of people, a lot of people with expertise and experience in their respective issue areas. And it's really leaving a deficit here in case of a crisis. You recently wrote something for Foreign Policy Magazine in response to the president firing the acting DNI McGuire. Um, honorable man who served this country with great distinction in and replacing him with Rick Grinnell, who was the ambassador to Germany, still holds that title, by the way, uh, 
and you wrote a piece for Foreign Policy magazine about this. You were quite upset about it. Explain why. Why is Rick Grinnell not the yeah. the, the great pick to be the next acting DNI? <laughs> I know. I have my well, opinion. I want to hear. I yeah. want my listeners to know why you were horrified by it. Well, in some ways, and this is what horrified me, he is the perfect pick for President Trump. Uh, because President Trump, as I argued in that piece and firmly believe, he doesn't want a DNI. He does not want a director of national intelligence in the mold uh, as we have had them uh, since the position's creation in 2004. Um, he doesn't want a DNI, whether acting or not. What President Trump is looking for is essentially a bill bar of the intelligence community. He wants someone uh, who is there to protect and prize his personal interests, even when they conflict with the national interests, and to take care of issues uh, before they become problems. Uh, and that is uh, very much not what the DNI is supposed to do for this president or for any president. The legislation that set up the position in 2004 um, uh, makes a few um, commandments. For one, anyone who's nominated for this role, the legislation says, shall have extensive experience in national security. And as right. you know, uh, Tara, when it comes to that language, shall is not a should, Correct. shall is a must. That's right. Um, uh, when it comes to the core functions of the DNI, the legislation goes on to state that the DNI should head the 17 departments and agencies that comprise our intelligence community. This individual should serve as the chief intelligence advisor uh, to the president and to his senior advisors. And this person should also oversee the implementation of all of our uh, strategic uh, national intelligence program. That certainly doesn't sound like Rick Rennell, someone who doesn't have a day of intelligence experience uh, in his life, someone who was a close uh, uh, aide and spokesperson to John Bolton during uh, Bolton's tenure at the UN, someone who's been involved in public affairs and uh, has had a number of uh, foreign clients, um, some of whom at least may have or should have triggered um, a foreign agent registration, uh, which he never went forward with. But what Rick Grinnell doesn't have uh, in sort of the traditional experience we would expect of DNIs and previous DNIs, I should say, had in some cases decades of national intelligence experience, had, had previously headed other intelligence agencies, had served uh, in Congress for uh, for years and years. Um, what Rick Grinnell doesn't have in all of that, he makes up for in spades when it comes to loyalty to the president. Uh, and this gets me back to that first point. I, I think that is what President Trump is looking for above all else. Uh, president Trump is keenly aware that his impeachment trouble started in the intelligence community where a whistleblower uh, put forward an inspector general complaint. Um, and as soon as President Trump knew it, he had a full impeachment inquiry uh, on his hands. He has seen his intelligence chiefs go before Congress and um, and uh, essentially speak the truth, namely that the president's approach to issues like Iran and North Korea and Russia are not grounded in sound intelligence. And President Trump wants someone who essentially will take care of problems before they become problems, uh, someone who will ensure that everyone walks in lockstep, uh, and someone who will frankly do the opposite of what the DNI is supposed to do, and that's to speak truth to power. He wants someone uh, who will protect the truth um, from going public. What did you think about the, uh, the reports of the head of the um, intelligence agencies saying they weren't going to go to Congress and do a public threat assessment like they do usually every year? I thought that that you know, I, I, volumes. I, I think it does, and and you you can't look at that in isolation. You have to look at that in the context of what happened last year when uh, some of these same individuals went before Congress and, again, spoke of assessments vis-a-vis Iran and North Korea and other issues. And President Trump took to Twitter and told them that 
they're naive and they need to go back to school. Uh, and then, of course, he reportedly scolded them in, in private, too. Um, I, you know, I think they are uh, rightfully uh, nervous about w- the implications of speaking the truth. And I think um, these, by and large, are good individuals, people who are trying to uh, trying to toe the line, trying to uh, keep protect their workforces from a mercurial president, people who know that uh, their departments and agencies are, are serving indispensable functions and who feel that they need to be in those positions in order to continue to keep the country um, safe and secure. And so in their mind, it's, it's a calculus. They uh, want to be able to serve the American people um, while still uh, remaining mostly on the good side of the president. I'm hopeful they may reach an accommodation with Congress where they go and, um, and speak in, in, a, in a public setting, but uh, they haven't announced that yet. Uh, and I think that's another symptom of uh, the president's undermining and delegitimization um, of these individuals and, and, their in- and the institutions they lead. Um, in our final minute or two, I, uh, I wanted to ask you, because it's, it's a segue into the op-ed you wrote back in February of 2017 when you decided to resign from the CIA uh, because, uh, tr- because of Trump's attacks on the intelligence community back then. And you look at the consistent attacks and undermining of our intelligence community, and it's it, it has just gotten progressively worse. Um, and you look at what happens to Shelby Pearson, who's the you know uh, head official for uh, cybersecurity on the NSC, getting raked over the coals for briefing Congress exactly how she should about Russian interference and interference in our elections. And it's it, you just look at this and you go, why would anyone worth their salt want to be involved in this administration, in the intelligence community? But there are good folks that are out there that are still trying to do their jobs to protect this country. But just, you, you know, the op-ed you wrote was called, I didn't think I'd ever leave the CIA because of Trump, the, because of the Trump's administ- administration's disregard for the intelligence community makes it impossible to serve in good faith. What do you say to those people out there now that are still trying to serve in good faith? I say thank you. I, I think there are uh, countless, and in the case of the intelligence community, it's uh, in fact a classified number of individuals who remain on the inside uh, and who have tried to uh, continue to toe the line. I uh, have the fortune of, of speaking to some of them um, uh, on occasion, and uh, just uh, they sometimes share uh, context from the inside. Of course, nothing classified, but um, you know the, the the hurdles they have to go through, the pressure they're under. Uh, the, the microscope under which they operate. Um, none of them have ever endured uh, anything like this. Uh, and so it's as bad it, as it, as them it seems. Often, it, 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 exactly. Uh, and in some cases, much worse. Um, you know, the, 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 the number of comments I get um, along the lines of, you know, you, you read a lot and you hear a lot, but you wouldn't believe what's really going on um, <laughs> without too. any further detail. Yep. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really disconcerting. And I think um, as ominous and as bad as it sounds from, uh, from the outside, uh, you know, I think we have to tip our hat to the people who are, who are still on the inside. Perhaps the worst of circumstances uh, do uh, the job they were assigned to do and uphold the, the Constitution um, and, and uh, uphold the oath they, uh, they, they, they swore to as well. Well, amen to that, uh, and we thank them for their service for sure, because God only knows where we would be without them, um, which is why this next election is so crucial. Ned Price, thank you so much for joining me. Keep up the good work, and uh, let's hope that we get this coronavirus thing under control. Like, it could impact the election, I think, if it, it, if it doesn't, and it's going to be very interesting to watch how this plays out. 
You're right. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you. We'll have you back. Thanks. Again, big thank you to Ned Price for joining me on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Uh, Everyone, please, my feel-good story of the week is go vote. If you live in a Super Tuesday state, please make sure you vote in the primary. Especially if you live in an open primary state, Republicans, guess what? You guys can vote for Joe Biden. (laughs) Not telling you who to vote for, but if you're so inclined, help out Uncle Joe. He's, he's, um, he could use the boost if you're so inclined. Anyway, uh, that's it for this week's edition. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram, and at honestly underscore Tara. I'll be uh, broadcasting again live from Cambridge. See you next week.